Ladies, we have some exciting topics to look at tonight. Unfortunately, this is our last study in the Book of Signs. Some of the topics that we studied were so relevant, it felt like we were reading the headlines. Just proof that Jesus is coming back soon. Tonight, we're going to look at the end signs. We don't have time to go over all of them, but we'll look at the return of the king and the millennium. And during the month, you'll get to study the entire part five, the end signs, and you'll see the new heaven and the new earth and the holy city that comes down from heaven. It's very exciting things. But before we begin, let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to come together as women and study your word. We thank you for the end signs, Lord, that we're looking at tonight. We're so excited for your soon return. Would you just open our hearts to all that you have for us? Lord, we need you. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. These final signs should fill our hearts with anticipation and hope. As the end of this world approaches, Dr. Jeremiah said that in the Old Testament, Christ's return is emphasized 17 times, and in the New Testament, 23 of the 27 books turn, talk, talk about his return. People are often surprised to learn that in the Bible, references to the second coming outnumber references to his first coming by 8 to 1. The prophets were told of Jesus' return, and Jesus himself told of his return. And the angels who appeared after Jesus ascended told the disciples in Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Let's look for a minute at the return of the king. Who is this king who is returning to set up his kingdom? Psalm 24, 8 through 10 says, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, your everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And glory is defined as divine perfection, excellence, splendor, and great honor. The Jesus we know in the Bible is very different from the Jesus we will see when he returns as king. When Jesus came the first time, we see him in his earthly ministry as he was healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and dying on the cross for our sins. But the Bible says in Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When he came the first time, he emptied himself of all his glory and splendor and majesty. We don't know what Jesus looks like in his glory, but when we see our king for the first time, we will be in awe because we will never have seen anyone so beautiful or so magnificent. That's the Jesus that's going to come in the clouds and take you to be with him. And that's the Jesus that's coming back to earth to set up his kingdom. Dr. Lockridge who is with the Lord now, was a pastor in San Diego. And he gave a sermon that has a six-minute description of Jesus at the end. That sermon has become world famous and is called, That's My King. I want to read you a brief excerpt of it. He says, Jesus is the King of the Jews. He's the King of righteousness. He's the King of the ages. He's the King of heaven, and he's the King of glory. 
He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. And he's eternally steadfast. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme and he's preeminent. That's my king. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes and his word is enough. His grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible. The heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind, and you can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. And that's your king, too, if you have put your faith and trust in his redeeming work on the cross. He's not just our future king. He's our king now. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And everything in the universe belongs to him, but yet he's a very personal king. He loves you, he adores you, and he created you. And he knows everything about you and wants a very personal relationship with you. A king's say is final. His authority isn't questioned. He doesn't gather people around him to take a vote to decide on a matter. He's respected. He's obeyed. No one argues with him. All bow before his authority. Is that how we respond to our king? Do we defer to our king? Do we accept his rule over our lives? Do we have the utmost respect for him and his word? Do we make, excuse me, do we let him make the final decisions over everything that concerns us? Is he obeyed without question? Do we seek his advice and are his will and his word the final authority in our lives? It's something to think about. After the tribulation, Jesus the King will return to earth. In Matthew 24, 29 through 30, Jesus said, In those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of the Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus has the title deed to earth and he's coming back to claim it and set up his kingdom. He has been away, and his enemy has tried to destroy his creation. But Jesus is coming back to earth to set things right, to right all wrongs, and to put an end to all evil. The king's return has long been anticipated by all those who love him. At Jesus' first coming, the only witnesses to his advent were Joseph and Mary. When he returns the second time, the entire world will witness his arrival. All eyes will see him. Revelation 1.7 says, Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. 
For many years, people couldn't imagine how it would be possible that all eyes would see him. But now with today's technology, we know how that's possible. There's an interesting thing that Dr. Jeremiah pointed out about this verse, Revelation 1-7. He said that one of the first things that Jesus said in the book of Revelation is that he is coming. And in Revelation 22-20, at the end of the book, one of the last things he says is, surely I am coming quickly. He called these verses the bookends to the book of Revelation. Jesus is making it clear that he wants us to be excited and he wants us to anticipate his return. All the armies of the earth are going to gather to fight against Jesus. Revelation 19:11 through 13 says, And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name on him that no one knows but he himself. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us. We're the armies of heaven that are following him. I read that in Roman times, a conquering hero would often ride a white horse into the city, and behind him were all the spoils of war, all the treasures that he had gathered to bring back to his homeland. And now we see Jesus on a white horse, the conquering hero returning to earth, his earth. And what is he bringing behind him? Us. We are his treasures that he's bringing back to his homeland. We will be riding with him, but unlike earthly armies, there's no mention of us having any weapons as we come into this battle because we aren't there to fight. We're there to watch him conquer his enemies and to set up his kingdom. The battle is his. The battle is always his, not ours. So whatever you're facing tonight, let him fight for you. He is the victor, and there's nothing too hard for him. Deuteronomy 24 says, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight against your enemies, to give you the victory. When Jesus returns, it is right after the world has gone through the worst time of judgment, the tribulation. This world will be full of darkness, both physically and spiritually. It'll be dark physically because of what we read in Matthew 24, that in those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And then they will look up. The light of the world will burst through that darkness. Can you even imagine this scene? The invisible God becomes visible to all. And the saddest part about this battle is that the Lord gave them every chance to repent. We read over and over in the book of Revelation that during the tribulation, he was gracious and he never completely destroyed them. He sent two witnesses to preach the repentance and he sent 144,000 evangelists. And we see in Revelation 14:6 that an angel was flying midair proclaiming the eternal gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people. No one was left out. Everyone heard, but yet they didn't repent. It says in Revelation 19:20 through 21, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And the battle was over that quickly. 
That's how powerful our God is. One against millions. And they were destroyed instantly. We have to remember that Satan is not God's equal. He is a created being. And the only authority he has is what the Lord gives him. He is a formidable enemy for us, but not for the Lord. The Lord has a single angel chain him and throw him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. The Lord's enemies are defeated at this point, and it's time for him to set up his kingdom. Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. What would our country be like if it was ruled with wisdom, justice, and righteousness? How different things will be, would be. Well, it is coming. It will be ruled by our king, and it is called the millennium. The millennium is a thousand years of universal peace ruled by Jesus, and the second coming of Christ begins the thousand years. Daniel 7:14 says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. What an amazing kingdom. No wars or sickness, no sorrow or pain, no homelessness or disease. We'll have no need for prisons or hospitals. What an incredible world that will be, so different from what we experience now. Christ will rule in righteousness, and his kingdom will be holy. Things that cause us heartache now will be removed. It will be a time of unprecedented joy and peace. We don't know exactly what it will be like. We can only use our imaginations, because the Lord hasn't given us all the details. But no matter what we imagine, it won't even come close. It will be so much better, because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Dr. Jeremiah says our responsibilities in the millennium will be based on our faithfulness in this life and that we will have sharp minds, strong bodies, clear purpose, and unabated joy. Doesn't that sound wonderful? At the end of the millennium, something shocking happens. Satan is released to go out and deceive the nations, to gather them for battle against the Lord. The Bible says in Revelation 28, in number, they are like the sand of the seashore. It's so hard to understand how after living in a perfect world where Jesus is king, where love and peace and security reign, that they would <clears throat> believe that they could <clears throat> excuse me, find something better. That's how the enemy always works, doesn't he? He gets you to question God. He gets you to question his love. He gets you to question his motives, his authorities, just like he did in Eden. When this happens, there's no huge battle. Fire comes down from heaven and destroys all of them. How heartbreaking to have followed the deceiver. When I was a new believer and I first read this, I couldn't understand why would he set him free again. But then I realized that after this final rebellion, Jesus would have with him all those who truly love him. And that is when he creates our eternal home, the new heaven and the new earth, which you will be learning about this month. When I was studying through part five, I kept thinking, 
where do we go from here? We've learned so much about what will be happening in the future, and we know Jesus is coming back soon. How does the Lord want us to live between now and when he comes? Colossians 1.10 says, So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And don't we all want that, ladies? We want to serve him with joy. We want to be his hands and his feet to this hurting world. And we want to share the gospel with the lost. But we live in difficult times. Our world is changing so quickly. Things that we never believed would happen are happening now. The foundations of our society are crumbling, and our culture is full of fear and uncertainty. How do we live the kind of lives that the Lord wants us to live and keep our eyes on him? and not on all that is going on around us. The Lord showed me several things in 1 Peter that I want to share with you tonight. These things are gifts from him that he's given us to equip us so that we can live, as it says in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared that has offered salvation to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Could you please turn in your Bibles to First Peter? The people that Peter were writing to we're in very similar situation that we have been this past year or so. They weren't dealing with a global pandemic, but persecution of their faith was increasing. They had lost their jobs. Many had lost their homes. They were scattered and they were isolated, much the same as we have been this last year, but for different reasons. The Lord uses Peter to remind them that he's given them many gifts that they can use to get through these difficult times. And he's given us these same gifts. I want to share with you six things that will help us navigate through this life. They're well-known gifts from the Lord, but we often don't take advantage of them. The first gift from the Lord that we see in 1 Peter is the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1-2, it says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. When Jesus left earth, he promised to send the Holy Spirit. In John 14:16 through 17, it says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit strengthens us, he teaches us, he comforts us, and he helps us understand God's word. He gives us power to witness, he gives us discernment, and he guides us into truth and gives us wisdom. We forget how much we need him every minute of every day. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ, to make us more like him. As we yield to the Spirit, we bear fruit that pleases God. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Against such, there is no law. We all want that kind of fruit evident in our lives. We need to ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit every day. We can't do anything in our own strength. I heard someone say once, as wind to a sail or gas to a car, that's how the Holy Spirit is in the believer's life. We aren't going to be able to accomplish anything without him. We need his power. Second Peter 1.3 says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and goodness. The second gift that we see in 1 Peter is praise. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise includes adoring God, appreciating him for who he is, being grateful for all the blessings that he's given us. Praise strengthens our faith, and it deepens our experience of how wonderful God is, how loving and how able he is to satisfy our hearts and to meet our deepest needs. In good times and in hard times, praise is always the answer, because God is always good, even when life isn't. Praise gets our minds off of our troubles and onto the only one who can solve them. If you've been studying along with us in Revelation on Sundays, you have seen that in the middle of all that's happening on earth during the Great Tribulation, the Lord stops and shows us the praise that's going on in heaven. From chapters 4 through 19, there are 14 praise breaks. During these times of praise, we see God being worshipped as the Almighty, the Holy One, the one who is faithful and true, they worship him as the one who is just and great and righteous. We need to take breaks throughout our day to praise the Lord, to get filled with the wonder of who God is, his worth, and his power. Then you can get back to your day with renewed faith and trust in him. Praise takes us away from the busyness, the craziness, the difficulties that surround us. And it gets us into his presence to be alone with him. When we praise the Lord, we are reminded of how much he loves us and how he's working all things together for our good. Praising the Lord refreshes, restores, and revives us. Psalm 50:23 says, whoever offers praise glorifies me. When we praise the Lord, we can appreciate, adore, and stand in awe of who he is. Whenever the stresses of life are getting to you, stop and praise him. It will immediately change your perspective. Praise helps us to fix our faith on our all-powerful God, the one who is greater than our failures and our fears, our frustrations and our weaknesses. Warren Wearsby said, There is nothing like a fresh view of the glory of God to give you the strength for the journey. The third gift from the Lord is fellowship with other believers. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. The unity that we have in Christ is the basis of our fellowship. Jesus prayed in John 17.23, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity so that the world will know that you sent me 
and have loved them even as you have loved me. We need each other. We're all part of the body of Christ. And when we're not spending time together, we feel incomplete. We all felt that last year. And it's so good to be together again. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Christian fellowship is not merely suggested in the Bible. It is commanded. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assemblings of yourself together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We need to exhort and encourage each other, to support each other, to walk by each other's side during the hard times, and to rejoice with each other during the good times. Proverbs 27.17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. In true Christian fellowship, we can sharpen each other's faith and stir each other up to good works. We get so busy, but we need to make time for fellowship because it's a gift from the Lord and it greatly benefits us. It's important to build friendships and to invest in each other's lives. Christian friends are a great way to keep your mind on spiritual things because they're going to pray for you, they'll offer godly advice, and they will keep you accountable. The fourth gift is the Bible, God's Word. 1 Peter 2, 2-3 says, As newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word, so that by you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like mother's milk sustains a newborn, the word of God sustains us. When a newborn baby is done drinking his milk, he is satisfied and content because he is filled. And it's the same way for us. When we are in God's word, it satisfies us and it fills us. We have a God who wants us to know him, and he reveals himself in his word. It's important to get to know the Lord because you can't trust somebody that you don't know. And when you can completely trust the Lord, you fall in love with him. And when you love Jesus, you can trust him with every little detail of your life. You're only as close to someone as you choose to be. But like all relationships, the more time you spend with someone, the better you get to know them. What an incredible blessing it is that we have a God who wants a relationship with us and wants us to spend time with him. The word of God is a love letter that he's written to you, and his signature is all over it. It tells you not only that he loves you, but it shows you what he's done to demonstrate his love for you. It's an epic love story from the beginning to the end. It tells how he came to rescue you from your enemy and how he will never leave you or forsake you and how he's coming back to take you to be with him forever. What do people do with love letters? They read them over and over until they're almost memorized. They don't want to miss a word. In the Bible, you read about how the Lord can heal your broken heart how he can bind up your wounds, how he makes all things new, and how he works all things together for your good. You'll see him tear down walls and walk on water and part the seas, and you'll realize that there's nothing in your life that's too hard for him to handle. And how did he sign his love letter? The last thing he says at the end of the Bible is that he's coming back for you. Revelation 22:20. he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. 
Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's what this whole study has been about. Jesus is coming back very soon for you and for me. The Gideons distribute Bibles around the world, and this is what they write in the front of their Bibles. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill your memory, rule your heart, guide your feet, read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. How would you describe the word of God and what it means to you? I pray that you treasure it and read it every day. Joshua 1, 8 through 9 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The next gift that the Lord has given us is prayer. 1 Peter 4, 7, But the end of all things is at hand, Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Prayer is simply communicating with God, spending time in his presence. In prayer, we pour out our hearts, we give thanks, we confess sins, and we ask for help for ourselves and for those we love. This is a time in history like no other. We need to be women of prayer. We need to make prayer a priority. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. With our busy lives, we don't have time for prayer. We have to make time for prayer. I'm sure you'll agree with me that everyone makes time for what's important to them. Jesus made prayer a priority. In Luke 5:16, it says, But he would often withdraw to desolate places to pray. In Luke 6:12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Mark 1.35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And if it was important to the Son of God to spend time with his Father, it needs to be important to us too. Another great verse about prayer is Philippians 4.6-7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You could summarize this verse, don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything. There is a saying that goes, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And isn't that true? But here we have a prescription for worry from God. We give all our concerns to the Lord And we leave them with him. We trust him to work them out according to his perfect will and in his perfect timing. And when we give our concerns to the Lord, then his peace will guard our hearts and our minds. Another verse on prayer is Proverbs 15.8. And it simply says, the prayer of the upright is his delight. 
Our prayers bring joy to the Lord. And I want to do anything I can to bring him joy after all he's done for me. And I know you feel the same. It makes sense that our prayers will bring him joy. Because if you're a parent, you know what it's like when your kids want to spend time with you and share their hearts with you and ask your advice. And our father feels the same way. He wants us to pour out our hearts to him. He wants a close relationship with us. God gives us a promise in James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And the last gift that we see in 1 Peter is our future hope, the return of Jesus Christ and living in heaven with him forever. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 say, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Hope in our world generally means maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, I hope so. But this verse says we have a living hope. Our hope is certain because it's founded on God's promises. God's promises are rock-solid commitments made by our Father, and because he is faithful, we have full assurance that he will do what he promised Here are three promises about our future hope. 2 Peter 3.13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 14.2-3, In my Father's house are many mansions, If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We are just passing through here. This is not our home. We will be with the Lord forever. Jesus is coming back soon, and this hope purifies us. And as you study through part five of the Book of Signs this month, It will get you really excited for our hope in heaven, for the place where we will spend eternity, a place that the Bible describes in Revelation 21.4, and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. We have a slide. Thank you, Matt. Here's the list from 1 Peter. Lady, take these blessings and use them. They are gifts from the Lord, and they aren't available to the rest of the world. They are only for his children, and they will help us as we serve him until he returns. These gifts were given to us to equip us to have a closer walk with him, to strengthen us, and to give us hope and security, and to fill us with his peace. In the study on the Book of Signs, we learned a lot of things. We see that the rapture is imminent. And I want to speak to just for a minute to the ladies here or to those listening at home who maybe aren't sure if they would go with Jesus when he comes. Maybe you think you might, but you don't know for sure. It says in 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can leave here tonight knowing that you have eternal life. The Bible says there's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus. In John 14:6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And if you put your faith and trust in him and you confess your sins to him, he promises to forgive you and give you eternal life in heaven with him. Charles Spurgeon said, You may think you could live without Jesus, but you can't afford to die without Jesus. One of the things that we loved about the book of signs is that Dr. Jeremiah said several times throughout the book, don't wait. Time is running out. You have to make a choice, and you have to make it now. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't wait, ladies. God doesn't send anyone to hell. The choice is yours. And he has gone to great lengths a tremendous personal sacrifice to himself in sending his son to die in your place in order that you could be saved, and he's reaching out to you tonight to offer forgiveness. He loves you so much. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Put your faith and trust in him tonight. He will forgive you. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will guide you through this life and take you to be with him when you leave this earth. Could we bow our heads, please? Do you want to be forgiven tonight? Do you want to know that you have eternal life? Do you feel the Lord tugging on your heart? If you're ready to make that decision now, would you slip up your hand and I'll pray for you? And for you ladies that know him, do you want a closer walk with the Lord? Do you want to make time to be alone with him a priority? Do you want to fall more in love with him every day? Do you want him to have control over every area of your life? If that's what you want, slip your hand up. I'd love to pray for you. Thank you, Father, for all these ladies that want a closer relationship with you. Would you help them to seek you first? Let their relationship with you be the most important thing in their lives. I ask that you help them to just place their faith and their trust in you alone, Lord, and not in anyone else or not in anything else. Encourage them, Lord. Guide them and strengthen them. And let their love for you grow more each day. We want to thank you for tonight, Lord. We want to thank you for meeting with us, for all that you've taught us through this book of signs. Show us how to take these truths and apply them to our lives. And Lord, we are so excited for your soon return. Our prayer is, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.